Chapter 10 of Atlantic Classics. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Allison, Virginia. We are fearfully and wonderfully made.tumblr.com. Studies in Solitude by Fanny Stearns Gifford. She was never lonely, she told herself. The solitude of her little old white house, sitting retired from the village street among its lilac trees and syringas, did not frighten or depress her. She could spend a whole day of rain there, seeing no one but the grocer's boy, the big gray cat, and occasional stooped hurrying figures out in the wet street, and could come down into evening calmly, busied with her enforced or chosen duties and thoughts. A cloud seemed to wrap her round in many folds of seclusion, till the common world of hurry and friction and loud or secret loves and hates was dim to her eyes and ears. Street sounds and whistles of trains at the crossroads were muffled echoes, but the ticking of the tall clock, the throbbing of rain on a tin roof, the infrequent wind banging at a loose window, the cat's creepy tread on the stairs, grew rhythmic and insistent. Yet she was not lonely. She never stopped to brood, listening long to perilous voices. She denied even to certain pieces of furniture, books, or ornaments their passive right to conjure up the specter of her solitude. If a room seemed too vibrant with unseen presences, she would enter it and drive out the quivering mystery with some brisk, petty business of sweeping, of shifting a picture, or rearranging a bookshelf. Often she whistled softly about her work, although there were moments when, as if by an instinct, she would stop short and glance over her shoulder to see nothing, and after that to be still. So the day would shift from grey dawn to grey dusk, and she had not allowed herself to think that she might have cause for loneliness, there in the quiet house behind its dripping lilac trees. Only in the evenings did the clock and the rain become too loud and real. Then, as she sat with a pleasant book or broidery in the yellow lamplit circle of her sitting-room, warm and quaint in its accumulation of color. Old gay reds, greens, blues, tumbled together by generations of fond householders, and now subdued into harmony by years and the low light. She would find herself all at once rigid as an ice image, yet alert as a coiled serpent, listening. Listening for what? For a quick step on the flags before the door? For a long jangling peal at the bell? For a voice in the hall, or a sick, querless summons from the downstairs chamber, or the scraping of a chair from above? No. She knew that she had no cause to wait for these things. There was only the rain, the clock, sleek Diogenes purring on the white fox-skin, the lamp-wick fretting a little to itself, and once in a while, out in the dark street, the splash and clatter of wheels, the faint, wet whisper of feet that always passed her gate. So, with a self-scorning smile and a drawing of her hands across her eyes, she would take up again the book or needlework, and stop abruptly that rigid listening for sounds which never came. Long since, on her first solitary night in the old house, she had vowed to herself that she would not be sad or strange, no matter what tricks her heart and mind might play her. She would not fear memory and anticipation, but would compel them to be her servants, to keep their distance. She had been young then, and had not quite believed in her solitude. Now that she knew it through and through, she was still aware that to look too far back or too far forward would equally undo her. On these rainy nights of withdrawal, her trial times were still upon her. If she failed now, if one shudder or one tear escaped her, she was lost forever, and the White House would drive her out into a world where she could no more choose her own way of being alone.
but she was not lonely she repeated and to prove it her mind would indulge in a fantasia of loneliness the book would slip from her hand and she gazing half hypnotized into shadowy corners visited all the solitary people over the wide world it pleased her to imagine homesick officers in stifling indian bungalows young men and girls fresh come to the city wandering forlorn through the glare of streets or idling under their meagre lodging-house gas-jets light-keepers on desolate sand-dunes and rock-ledges climbing at night twisted iron steps to tend the eternal lamp night-watchmen pacing deserted yards and mill-corridors sailors in the dead watch poets and prophets trying passionately to capture the wild visions which leaped across their darkness and most of all many women sitting as she did in warm quaint rooms near village streets hearing the clock tick and the rain throb it pleased her to travel so on light unhindered wing almost it seemed as if her soul left her body and fared out to knock against every lonely window and to keep dumb company round every solitary lamp and she felt that she was one of an endless army marching straightforwardly and silently out upon their lives stripped of the disguises that kindred and close friendships invent and making in return for the silence of their hearts and the smiling of their lips only one demand of all that encountered them that demand she never shaped of her own will but when she had sat a long time dreaming and had at length roused herself to make fast doors and windows had shut the cat in the kitchen taken her hand lamp and gone up the broad stairs to bed then in the gay chintz hung security of her own chamber her throat would fashion involuntarily those words that her heart and lips refused to let themselves speak it is all right enough her throat would say for her as she turned down the counterpane untied her shoes and wound her watch i am quite all safe and right but no one must ask me if i am lonely no one must ever ask me that part two it had appeared presently that her house was haunted though not by ghostly terrors for herself she had only felt at times the vaguely imagined intimation of some presence other than her own in the quiet rooms but she had no surer knowledge of her dimly harboured guests until a friend wearied out with the love and care of over many babies came to her for rest and after two days of grateful idleness in her sunny window asked suddenly miriam whose are the voices what voices miriam parried and lucy described them happy laughing voices as of young people playing and gossiping together i have heard them so often when i was lying alone and you were out or off somewhere i almost asked a dozen times who was talking they are always downstairs or across the hall or under the window and they are such happy voices young voices oh very sweet and glad miriam smiled and stroked her friend's nervous fingers lucy had always heard and seen more than other people did and now that she was so tired, no doubt her worn-out fancy befooled her lightly. They talked it over together. Lucy, smiling at herself, nonetheless insisted, there were voices in the house. Sometime you'll hear them, too, she nodded. They're not sad or dreadful or gloomy. Oh, no, they're just young and glad. I love to hear them. And another evening, when Miriam came into the sitting-room after an errand down the street, Lucy greeted her eagerly, saying, "'It was music this time!' Oh, I've heard such music. I almost went to see if someone wasn't playing. It was like a harp, I think, with a violin and piano. It was very beautiful. I thought someone must be playing until it came to me that of course it was the young people. It was happy music, just as the voices are so happy. Miriam, there are young people somehow in your house. 
It became a sort of gentle, pleasant joke between them, while Lucy stayed on. "'Have you heard them today?' Miriam would ask, and sometimes Lucy replied, "'No, they must have gone off on a picnic. It was such a good day.' Or, "'Yes, they were here while you were out this afternoon. I don't see why you don't hear them.' And Miriam would shake her head. "'I never hear and see things, you know. They are your voices, Lucy. They are your babies grown up who are talking to you, even here in my old maid house.' But Lucy denied it. "'No, Miriam, I never heard them anywhere else. They belong to you and your house, and they mean something good and sweet and coming, not gone by. They're not ghosts.' And when at last Miriam kissed her goodbye at the train, Lucy was saying, "'I'm glad to think of you, there in your nice sunny house, with the voices and the music. Goodbye, dear.' As Miriam sat alone that evening, she wondered about those young, happy presences. She wished that she could hear them laugh and sing and play, not merely feel them blindly stirring about her. She sat, deep in reverie, smiling at Lucy's merry yet honest insistence upon her quaint little hallucination at herself for more than half believing it. "'It is better that I never hear them,' she concluded at last, rather soberly. "'I couldn't live alone this way if I heard them. It is all well enough for Lucy, with her husband and her house full of babies, to hear things like that, granting that she truly did, dear mysterious Lucy. But if I ever heard them, if I heard them—' She glanced about the room as if she half expected to see a gay face above the piano, a bright head bending by the lamp. It would mean that I was going a little bit mad, yes, just a little bit mad, for all that they are sweet young voices. She shivered, stood up quickly, and went over to the long mirror. Miriam, she whispered, looking into the shadowy face that met hers. Lucy said those were young voices, coming voices, not gone by. But you know, Miriam, that if they are, they belong to someone else who may live in this house, to someone else I tell you, not to you at all. Don't be a fool. You've been quite sensible so far. Don't spoil it all now. Do you hear? You mustn't even wish to hear those voices or that lovely heart music. Now you understand. Months later, she saw her friend again. How are the voices? Lucy asked gaily, across the laughing baby who pulled at her necktie and snatched down her curls. I never heard them, Miriam answered almost shortly. You know, don't you? To him that hath shall be given? Please may I hold the baby. Part three. Yet often, when she had spent a part of the day or evening away from home, she had a curious expectation of returning to find her house not empty and silent, but with something alive in it to greet her. She did not think of the people who had been her own in the different days so far past, nor of her living friends, nor of the young presences whose laughter Lucy had insisted upon hearing. It seemed to her simply that there was more life and motion and personality in her waiting house than just Diogenes crouching on the front porch and the kettle steaming to itself on the back of the stove. One winter evening she walked late down the village street. The moon rode high and white. Every frosty breath shone, every step creaked and crackled in the snow. Through the thin, leafless maple trunks and lilac boughs she could see her house plainly, the snowy roof, glittering to the moon, the low eaves, ragged with silver icicles, and the four yellow windows of the hall and sitting-room, which she had lighted against her late return. She had a definite sense of expectancy. She was going back to something, to somebody, and found herself hurrying almost joyfully. But with her hand on the gate she stopped and stared at the house as if it were strange to her. An icy little stream flowed suddenly round her heart. 
for a second all the world the moon the village the house and her own inner secret universe staggered and reeled and shook but as suddenly everything grew calm and still again the frightful chill melted from her blood the moon watched her with the same high virgin regard and the yellow windows beckoned her home she went slowly up the path and into the warm silent hall in that moment at the gate she had realized that it was only herself to whom she was going back herself who made those windows bright who piled the logs on the hearth that now she could light and sit by dreaming it was herself would be running down the stairs to greet her and fetching an apple from the pantry and listening to her story of the evening's doings it seemed to her almost as if she had become two individuals one of her went out into the village and the world the other stayed always in the little white house she would always be waiting to greet her home that was all now that she understood it it did not concern her any more she was becoming a good hermit she commented but noticed with the detachment that had grown upon her that she was not going to remember that shuddering moment at the gate she blew the fire high thinking after all there is nobody but myself who understands me much and was amused at her simple egotism part four but secretly she knew her most perilous enemy it was not sadness or selfishness or the voices or the odd wilderness of a determined recluse it was eternity there was no telling when eternity might claim her sometimes she awoke at dawn and went down into the dewy garden to work among the roses and iris and pansy plants with the birds all singing and the sun dancing like a great wise morning star the day wore on as she digged and transplanted and clipped and watered till weary a little she went into the house and took up the endless bit of sewing or some story or poem to finish and all at once in spite of the sun the earth smell the brisk village sounds beyond her garden fence she knew that her anchor dragged she had slipped her moorings in the safe harbor of time and was drifting off off into eternity then she cared nothing for rosebugs or iris roots or stockings to darn or stories to read she thought of love and sin and death of nations at war and her friends souls in joy or agony of god himself and they were all as nothing she saw the flickering garden, she heard the song sparrow, and the clucking hen. She felt her own scrubbed and earth-stained fingers and her beating heart, but these were not necessary to her. She was terribly remote, terribly careless and still and proud, for she was in eternity. "'What does it all matter?' she would murmur. "'What if they drink and steal and sin and die, or love and lose and win and die too? And what of me? What of me? We are all in eternity.' God himself is in eternity. But she kept the peril close. None of the neighbors who hailed her on the street or gossiped on the vine-hung porch ever noticed that often, as she talked, she would clasp her hands with a sudden, fierce little gesture, as if she were holding tight to some strong arm, and that in her heart she was whispering, even while the swift, crooked smile danced across her lips, "'Oh, God, make me remember! Make me remember! We're in time now! Not in eternity yet!' Not in eternity yet. End of Studies in Solitude by Fanny Stearns Gifford